0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: James chapter 1. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Pray with me. Lord, you are Lord. You reign above all things. You are God. We come humble before you. We come needing to be more humble before you. Would you remind us of who you are? To teach us from this verse in James. You bring us forth of your own will by the word of truth. Lord, you speak about what you do in us to birth us, to bring us forth by the word. And I pray this morning, Lord, that we would hear the word. That you would minister the word to us. Teach us. Give life. Birth us. Some here, Lord, as the verse is alluding to, for the first time, create spiritual life here. Bring people to faith, I pray, Lord. Do that by the Word. For others of us here, Lord, renew our hearts. Transform us by the renewal of our minds. Use the Word. The Word is a tool in your hand Father, commission the Spirit to wield it mightily in our lives here this morning. Give me clarity and expression. Help me to focus in my thoughts. In many ways, Lord, I feel distracted, and I know there are many others here who are and will be distracted. Would you focus us in to hear the Word come from your hand and give life through it? That's my prayer. We are dependent on you for this, Lord. All of the glory will be yours when you make it to be so. We want to live for you, we want to live to your praise, and so would you bring that about today a little bit more by your word. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in college, I shared an apartment with two older guys, one of whom was working but was also taking some graduate classes in, in another city that required him to drive every now and then to these classes. And one week in the days leading up to a time when he had to travel, I was upstairs in my loft bedroom, and I heard some kind of commotion downstairs. And I was reading. I didn't pay too much attention to it. It sounded like perhaps the garbage was being taken out, the dishes were being done, and Things were being straightened up, and, and then when the vacuuming began, I noticed, this is a bachelor pad, I wasn't aware that we owned a vacuum, but, <laughs> but it was vacuum, it was a vacuum, I began to notice, and then when he called up to me, hey, Steve, do you have any ironing that needs to be done? I, I was with an iron? What, what's going on here? So I, I went downstairs. And in the midst of the cleaned up living room, sure enough, there's the ironing board and and my friend working away at his shirts and perhaps my other roommate's shirts and says, do you have any shirts that need to be ironed? Now the rule is that if it is a shirt and does not have buttons and has words on it, it doesn't need to be ironed. (laughs) So of course I don't have any shirts that need to be ironed, neither do you. What's the deal? What's going on here? Well, I'm doing some ironing. I thought I had some stuff that needed to be done. And I paused, and then I began to put things together. The straightened-up house, the dishes and the garbage, the vacuuming, the shirts being ironed, the upcoming trip to class, the books stacked around, the blank computer screen. And I said, is this the weekend that that big research papers do? And he said, well, yeah, sure, but why do you ask? Well... How's it coming? I'm a little behind, but I'll get right back to it after the ironing. We've all done that sort of thing, haven't we? Something big must be done. But kind of what happens is that a lot of other stuff that could be done gets in the way. The dishes, the vacuuming, the ironing while the paper sits unwritten. I'll get back to that after these things. The, the, the good, maybe even the sort of necessary, gets in the way of the critical and the vital in our life. That happens to us. We've done that. That challenge faced the early church, and it faces our church as well, in an area much more important than papers and vacuuming and ironing. We're going to look at that today in Acts chapter 6. As we've been working through the book of Acts, what we have seen is that God comes upon the church in chapter 2 and begins a marvelous and stunning work. He pours out the Spirit the day of Pentecost, and the Spirit comes and begins to gather in the first fruits. That's what Pentecost is about God takes the the holiday of Pentecost and says, I'm going to gather in the first fruits, but not of the physical harvest, of the spiritual harvest. And he begins to do that in amazing ways. The Gospels going forth. Miracles are being performed. People are believing the church is growing. God has taken the field, and so Satan takes the field also to try to oppose him. It's not always explicitly stated that this is the work of Satan. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just the kind of stuff that he's about. First thing he tries, we saw in chapter 4 and last week in chapter 5, he tries straight physical power, persecution. I'm going to silence the witness, he thinks. I'm going to silence the witness of the church. I'm going to curtail the spread of the gospel by threat of force. If you make Jesus an issue out there, it will hurt you. The apostles hear that. The church hears that. And they respond, we have to obey the Lord. We're going to talk anyway. So it's as if Satan moves on to plan B. Okay, well, if they are going to talk, then maybe I'll corrupt them from the inside. So that when they spread their message, they're a church of hypocrisy. Looking nice on the outside, but covering over on the inside, unrepentant sin, rotten at the core. See this in the beginning of chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. That kind of community is a community that has walked away from the power of God, grieved him in sin, left him over here, and is going out and proclaiming a message that they've actually gutted from any traction because people look at it and say, hypocrite. You talk about this message, come and change your life. Look at you guys, you're the same as us. Satan would be happy with that kind of community. If they're going to witness, let's corrupt them. God moves to stop that as well. And so the third tactic this morning is, if they're going to witness and they're going to be concerned about holiness, maybe I could distract them. Maybe I could lift up in front of their eyes something that would be good to do and in a sense even necessary, but isn't critical. Oh, they're concerned about that and they're concerned about holiness, but I'll keep them engaged with other things. I'll try that. That's what rises up here. God deals with that as well. Let me read the passage. This is Acts chapter 6, the whole chapter, all 15 verses. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolás, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Acts chapter 6. Before we turn to a couple of main themes, there are just a few details that we should look at in analyzing this chapter. So we're going to pass back through it for just a moment. It flows right out of the end of chapter 5, where verse 42 says that the apostles were continuing on preaching from house to house and in the temple. Many people were coming to faith. Verse 1, things were going great. The number of disciples was being multiplied. Things were still moving ahead. They were, they were on the rise. And a little problem arises. Perhaps it's because of the success itself. The number of people are growing, and some folks were starting to get overlooked. Inadvertently, doesn't seem to be anything malicious here, but there was some neglect of some of the widows. And, it carries a cultural element of, of possible discrimination there. There's a line here. It's not just all of the widows. It's Hellenistic widows versus Hebrew widows. These folks were all of Jewish background, but Hellenists were folks of a Greek cultural background. Greek was their native language. They were from, probably from Greek-speaking lands. They might even have some different customs. And so they were a little bit culturally and perhaps even ethnically different. That might have contributed to why they were being overlooked. The folks who were kind of in charge were a little bit different than them, maybe didn't understand them or perhaps didn't know the circles that they ran in. For whatever reason, something's happened here that needs to be addressed. They've been neglected in the distribution of the food. Now, if this is not addressed, what's going to happen? Well, a couple of things, both of which are negative for the spread of the gospel. One, the widow's needs won't be met. There'll be suffering that will be a black mark on the community it's a, it's a hallmark that, that widows and orphans should be taken care of and this community doesn't do that that's a negative in the witness of the community but also it's likely that a rift would continue to develop you guys are neglecting us and discord would break out that also is a black mark on the community and would threaten to split it but it has to be faced and so they do verse 2 Tells us what they did. They gather the church and they lay out their plan. And in doing so, they, they point out this pretty critical division of labor here. You can read through there and they say the apostles, the leadership of the church is saying, it is not right that we would neglect the ministry of the word, ministry of the word and prayer down in verse 4. But we can't neglect this ministry, so here's what we're going to do we're going to find somebody else, you find somebody else who will do the ministry of the table. We'll give ourselves to this. We'll devote ourselves to this. There's a division there. We have to be careful in how we balance this because the leaders do cling to something that in one sense is more critical. We're going to talk about that. It's vital. It's central. It's foundational. But it's not superior. Let me change the wording a little bit to show something about the original. We will give ourselves to deaconing the word, You find some to deacon the tables. Same word in the original. It's translated a little differently, minister and serve. Talking about different ministries. We minister the word, you minister the tables. Both of us are ministers with different tasks. So in some sense, we're on the same plane here. Minister of word and minister of table. But the apostles realized we cannot give ourselves anything but this. This is critical. So go find some men. We will retain the final authority to lay hands on them and to appoint them, but you find them. Most responsibility seems to be in the community. And it pleases them. They go do that. They follow the criteria that was established. And note, the criteria is pretty high. This is not a low bar that the folks who can do this ministry are just any old people. There's, There's a bar there, full of the Spirit. These are quality people, spiritually mature. Go find some folks like that. And they do. And the result, Luke emphasizes, verse 7. This is interesting. I'm going to come back to this later. The result is not, and they appointed the seven, and the widows were fed. That tells us something about what's on Luke's mind here. The result is, they appointed the seven. And the word continued to spread, and the number, a number of disciples continued to multiply, and even reached into a previously unbreached group, the priests. Verse 7 is the solution, and it loops back to verse 1. You could, if you were kind of tracking it, we're, we're climbing along here. Whoop, time out. Problem arises. Verse 7 says, time in, we continue along. This story is a threat to this progression. It's solved. The mission continues. Now, verses 8 to 15, I'm not going to emphasize this morning, I'm not going to say much about them at all. In fact, they are bridging verses between today's section and next week's chapter 7. They elaborate a little bit more on Stephen and explain how he got in the predicament that he is in in chapter 7. What's worth noting today is that Stephen is one of the guys appointed to the ministry of the table But it never occurs to him that that is the sum total of his ministry. Yes, he ministers at the table. But let me tell you about something else, says Luke. He is also proclaiming the word. It's not his prime job in the structure of the church, but it's his job as a Christian. And he has some talent and ability that enables him to do certain things with certain people, and he embraces it in a remarkable way. A minister of the table also proclaiming the word. Go into that a little bit more next week. Focus this morning is going to fall on verses 1 to 7. A problem arose, it was avoided, and the church continued to advance. What are we to learn here? I'm gonna draw up two main themes. Something about God, something about us, as usual. First thing about God. We have to start with what the what is the assumed truth behind this passage. There's something that's assumed in why the apostles are not willing to give up the ministry of the word. Here's the first main point. God grows his church. By the Word. God grows His church by His Word. He grows His church in quantity, breadth, if you will. And He grows His church quality-wise, depth, spiritual maturity. He grows both ways by the Word. That's how He does it. The Bible, His special revelation. We're going to consider first how God grows us numerically. is assumed by the Apostles. It's implied in verse 7, as I was already talking about. They're teaching and preaching the word. This issue arises. They solve the problem, and what happens? Verse 7 says the word continues to grow, and the result is the church continues to grow. There's a connection there between the spread of the word and the spread of the church. Those two things go together. It's the implication of verse 7. But if you step back just a little bit and look at the whole book of Acts, this sits very heavy on the book of Acts. Consider Peter's sermons. Acts chapter 2. Peter preaching and quotes from Joel chapter 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, preaches and elaborates on what those passages mean and then preaches on how they connect to the events of Christ, the gospel. That's what he's talking about, the word and the result Verse 41, 3,000 people came into the church. The church grew numerically. They heard the word, received the word, the church grew. Same thing, chapter 3. He preaches again with numerous allusions to the titles of the Messiah, quotes directly from Genesis and Deuteronomy, preaching the word, connecting it to Christ, preaching the cross, what happens? Chapter 4, verse 4. Many who heard the word believed and the church grew connection word preached heard understood church grows god's growing his church by the word that's the pattern he moves his people equips and empowers them to proclaim the word gives them boldness gives them spirit power to preach the word all of what the scriptures say, all of what happened with Christ, not just personal testimony, that's a part of it, but to preach God's revelation to people. And the result is the church grows. That's what he's doing. That's his methodology. He says, make the word known. Proclaim it. Shout it from the mountaintops and I will take it and I will use this word of truth to birth my people. James 1. To bring them forth. I bring them forth. I do it. You don't. Other people don't even. God says, I do it. But I do it with a method, with a means. The scriptures. So preach them. Make them clear. Make them known. makes it plain that that's his goal again and again. And Peter does that again and again. And the church grows constantly, numerically. It's increasing. What does he preach? We've seen this four times. Christ approved by God, approved by the scriptures before, rejected by you and killed by you. He, again and again and again and again and again. He starts out with sin. He lands on sin always. He doesn't skip it. We might, or soft sell it because it's awkward. Don't. It's required. Sin is an issue. Sin is real. A rejection of a righteous and holy God is the most important thing at the start about us. That we live in enmity with God, against God. And it's important that the scriptures declare this to us because we look around the world and we don't really have any idea of that. Yeah, we're not perfect. That's about as far as we can get. But we have no concept of the magnitude of rejecting the Holy and Righteous One. So the Scriptures tell us that, which is why we have to preach the Word, so that people can see sin. Sin is critical. It's the first step. It must be understood. Some might even right now be kind of chafing at me that I'm talking about sin, your rejection of God. The fact that you're chafing and not mourning is evidence against you. Christian or non-Christian, it's evidence against you. Rather, we should be eager to see and grasp our sin. I've shared a quote before. I love this quote. An old, old saint once said, I keep my sin ever before me. Why? I keep my sin ever before me because it is the ballast. That's the weight in the bottom of a ship. In the keel or it's in the bottom of the hull. It is the ballast that enables me to throw up tall masts with big sails to catch the fullness of the grace of God. Got to know a little about boats to catch that. If you don't have any weight in your boat, you can't put up a big sail because your boat will tip over. If you have a really heavy weight in the bottom, you can put up a big sail and your boat won't fall over. I keep my sin ever before me because it enables me to throw up a huge mass with a wide sail to catch all of the grace of God. But you must see the sin to see the grace. There are consequences to sin. Just proportionate, righteous consequences. Hell. You must see that too. Hell. Whoa. We don't to talk about hell. We have to talk about hell. It's part of sin. It's the consequence of sin. And it is appropriate and just because we have infinitely offended an infinite God, we are deserving of an infinite punishment. An infinite time in hell. You have to see these two things. Think of it a little bit like a flashlight or, or maybe a spotlight. Think of the brightest spotlight you can think of. Take that into your lawn at noon and shine it on the grass. Helpful? A little bit, I guess. But frankly, I could see the grass at noon in my lawn without the massive spotlight. Helpful, I notice it. It's okay. I could have done without it. Take the same spotlight out to your lawn on a moonless midnight. Shine it on the grass. Now you need it. Without it, you can't see anything. With it, you can see everything. The grace of God, the gospel of God, makes no sense until you have first grasped sin and consequence and it has struck you and sunk in. And then the cross shines. All of this comes only in the scriptures. We can't get it in looking at nature. We can understand something of God, something of a discord with Him, but the magnitude of our sin and the magnitude of hell we cannot get apart from the Scriptures. We need them. People need them. God uses them to grow His church. He brings in then grace. All that sin, all that consequence can be avoided. It can be poured out somewhere else. Then in comes the message of the cross Christ crucified to save sinners. You know that, that Christ was crucified to save sinners. Christ was crucified that sin might be forgiven. I had a pastor once who said Christ was not crucified so that mistakes might be fixed, that sin might be forgiven. To preach sin, and then we preach the cross to others and to ourselves. There is good news there. That's what the gospel means. Gospel means good news, but it's only good news if you have a problem that needs solving. But it is good news because it is a good solution, the only solution. It is a permanent solution. The wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God, poured out on God who became man and went to the cross. Preach that to people. That's the message that God uses to grow his church numerically. Believe it, please, if you're not a Christian. but Interestingly, it is the very same message that he uses to grow the church qualitatively. It's the word again. The central message of the scriptures is the gospel. I use these terms somewhat interchangeably, gospel, word, Bible. The gospel is the very same thing that he uses to grow Christians. Now, remember what I'm doing here. It's kind of a long point, so I want to remind you what I'm doing. I'm trying to show what's behind why the apostles think it's so critical to not give up the ministry of the word because they know this is how God grows the church and this is how God grows the church and so if we avoid that we're not going to get this and we're not going to get that we must hold on to it he grows his church by the word and he grows Christians by the word remember what how we'd also seen this in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 what did the church do it gave itself it devoted itself to the teaching of the apostles give us the word after they're threatened in chapter 4 what do they do Peter and John go home to the church. They take them to the scriptures and pray through Psalm 2. They take them to the word and they say, Look what we find here. We see God's plan of redemption that he will set up his Messiah, that people will reject it, and he will overcome that too. He has planned and predestined, the text says, planned and predestined all of this so we can trust him and be bold. That is the church hearing the word and being changed by it. The apostles ministering it to them. God grows his church numerically and qualitatively by the word. That's what the whole rest of the Bible is talking about. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I determined to know nothing amongst you except Christ and him crucified. Nothing amongst you, even after you became Christians, but Christ and him crucified. He preaches the gospel to the Roman church, to the Ephesian church. He's preaching the gospel to the church, to grow the church. How does that work? Kind of like this. One day, I happened to notice a picture of a woman wearing a revealing dress. I know that never happens to anybody else. Happens to me every now and then. All the time. Happen to notice a picture. Now I haven't sinned yet. Just noticed the picture. Whether it's an image, whether it's an actual woman walking through the halls of any building, even sometimes in church. But I have the idea in my mind I could study that. Study her. That would be sin. Graciously, at this fictitious moment I just created here, graciously something pops into my mind and saves me from that sin. What is it? It's the gospel. Maybe a little more specific there. It's not just the command to avoid sexual immorality. It's not just statements about lust or anything like that. It's the gospel. What comes into my mind, my mind catches on Understand, it doesn't always happen to me. I'm just making up this situation here, in which this all works out just fine. But in this situation, my mind catches on the fact that lust is sin. So I know that first, right off. It is unbelief in the sufficiency of Christ to satisfy my soul. The Bible says, Psalm 16, in His presence is faith. Fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the thought comes up with the image that actually in her presence is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Go contemplate that. See a lure there, the draw. And lust, the sin of lust, says, I don't believe in the presence of God as fullness of joy. I think it's actually found over here. Let me go enjoy it. This is the struggle going on in the heart. It's not a struggle over duty. It's a struggle over pleasure and joy and satisfaction and contentment and happiness and fun and peace and rest, all those sort of things. The lie is it's found over here. And you fill in whatever your sin is. Fill, take out the lust thing, put in greed, put in anger, put in the desire to be proven right, put in the desire to be respected. Fill in your sin. The lie is that over here, when I get this, that's when I will experience good stuff, life. The scripture says, no. It's found over here, actually. And then the cross Looms up in my mind. Here's where the gospel comes in. The cross looms up and says, this is true. If God is for you, He has saved you, Steve. He saved you at the cross. He wiped away your sin to bring you into His presence so that you could have fullness of joy. You couldn't come before. Now He's made a way for you to come in. Is He now going to rip you off? We're fighting in my mind over the very first lie ever told by Satan. It's actually the only lie ever told by Satan. Very beginning, God said, that's a lie. He's just trying to hold you back. Real satisfaction is found over here. Told in the garden, told every day, every hour to me and you. And the cross says, nuh No. It's not a lie. I am for you. Look what I have done here to save you, to deliver you from wrath, to make you an object of my love and affection. I'm not going to rip you off. I'm not lying to you. I didn't save you so as to condemn you and doom you to misery. You already were condemned and doomed to misery. could have left you alone. I saved you to bless you in my presence, which I have made for you. In my presence is fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures. You walk away, you walk away from pleasure and joy and contentment. That's the lie that I'm tempted to believe. If I forget the cross, I forget the evidence. If I forget the gospel, I forget the work that He's done in my life, and I'm more tempted to believe the lie. Because on the surface, for a moment, it will pay off, it will be fun for a minute i walk this way, I'll walk this way, and before I know it, I'll, I'll wake up in the middle of the desert where there's no water anymore, and I wonder, what happened? Because it's a false hope. It does not deliver. The cross keeps pulling me back and says, here's where it is. I am for you. Trust me. Keep trusting me. It's not command-centered thinking. Commands are involved. It's cross-centered thinking. It works out a bunch of different ways when you face different sins. That's one way that it works out. And it happens just like that. I see the picture of the woman and all of that is in a flash. I don't have ten minutes to lay it all out. Which is why I have to have laid it all out before. So that it's on the mind and that it controls me. That's why you need the Word every day, constantly every day. To be washing you and filling you and shaping you. That the Gospel becomes the language that you speak. becomes the atmosphere in which you live. When the image then comes along, you've got something to fight it with. You don't have to go looking for the tool to use. You don't have time for that. It must be in you and gripping you, which is where the prayer part comes in. Because we all know you can put the Bible on your table or on your shelf, the words right there in your living room, and it hasn't made any difference to you. And we all know that you can read the Bible. Many people read the Bible. It doesn't make any difference to them. Many people have read the Bible and haven't become Christians. Many Christians read the Bible and don't become more mature Christians. We all know that's possible. What's the solution to that? We pray, God, you say you birth your church by the word of truth. You take that tool. So we pray, God, take that tool. Proclaimed, read, take that tool like a chisel in hand and whack on me. Chip, grind, smooth. Change the metaphor to an arrow. Arrow. God take the scriptures make them fly true strike me flush sink in to pierce in the insides of I me in the joints and the marrow don't let it strike a glancing blow get the most powerful weapon arrow bullet whatever if it hits like that it won't penetrate you got to hit flush God, take the word and hit me flush with it. Hit listeners flush with it, that it will penetrate them and change them. That's We pray the word home. We pray, God, pour out your spirit on the word. God, open my eyes, incline my heart to it as I read. Open the eyes and hearts of listeners as we speak to them. Prayer and word together. God grows his church by the word prayed home. We cannot neglect it. And it gets us to the second point. All of that first point is the assumption that's hinted at in verse 7, laid out in the whole book of Acts, the whole New Testament. It's what's lying behind the apostles' firm commitment to the ministry of the word and prayer. They know that it's critical. It's how God grows a church. Now, the second point is, what do we do about that? This is where it begins to come home to us a little bit, I think, what we should do. Second point, we must not neglect the centrality of the prayerful proclamation of the Word. We must not neglect it. I think that probably should be obvious. If it's critical, if it's what God uses, then we should not neglect it. We see the church right here taking care to do that. If we do neglect it, we leave people vulnerable, we curtail God's work in the church. Now, this passage does teach, I think, a number of other things. I'm going to focus on the not neglect this part. There are a number of other things that we can look at and we can see here, some principles. We can see the wisdom of division and labor, and we could then talk about that, why we should and how we should. We could move down a path of talking about God giving different gifts and different jobs. These are all biblical concepts. They're good. Some are called to teach and preach. Others called to minister at the table, etc. And we could talk about how important it is to to care for widows and other needs within the community. Those are true things, too. We could emphasize that there are no second-class ministers in the church. Some different types of church kind of have a religious class and then everybody else. That's not true. In some very real way, we are ministers. So there's some some things we could talk about there. We could go down those paths, but that's not the main thing that we're supposed to take out of this. The main thing we're supposed to see here is that we are not to neglect the centrality of, prayerful proclamation of the scriptures. Here's why I say that. I already mentioned this. The story is told from a perspective. It's like this. The word's being preached. The church is growing. Something happens that threatens that. Problem arises. It's addressed. And it's not the solution. The conclusion is not, and the widows were fed. It's that the progression continued. They continued to advance. What we're supposed to see there. We're supposed to say, "That's the problem that they overcame. The threat to the spread of the word." I see that there. The conclusion was that the word continued to spread and the church continued to grow. Okay, I'm going to focus on that. That's why I'm saying that this is a this is the emphasis of the of the uh, chapter here. It's the perspective from which the story is told. A threat to the spread of the word. They don't neglect it. It's not just about what the deacons are supposed to do. The deacons enable them to continue preaching the word. And even when it moves to these new deacons and describes one of them, what are they describing him doing? Preaching the word. Luke's emphasis is on the proclamation of the word. So I look at that and say, We have to somehow provide for not neglecting this proclamation. And then I look at our church and say, how are we doing in that? Three different things came to my mind when I began to think about this in relation to our church. Two of them were concerns and one's more of a a caution or a warning. Two concerns first. I first thought of this in regards to the elder board, some people say, and I think they're probably right, that this is the root of the division between elder and deacon. It uses the word deacon twice to deacon the tables, to deacon the word. It doesn't lay it out exactly, but it seems like it kind of the idea begins here. And when you look at the elder qualifications in the rest of the New Testament, they're very elder and deacon qualifications very similar. The one unique one is able to teach for elders. So I began to think about elders in this. How are we doing on the elder board as elders of the church in regards to ministry of the word and prayer? And to be honest, I have to admit to a little bit of blame there. I'm the leader of the elder board, and I don't think that I've done as good a job as I can or should pressing us towards being ministers of the word and equipping us to be ministers of the word. As I spend a little bit of time thinking and looking at what we do, I think too much of what the elder board does is administrative. Some of the things that really belong on a a deacon's to-do list, not because we're dumping things again, but because there's there's an idea here that we must be focused on ministry of the word and prayer. Now, some of these things I think are reasonable. I don't know what else to do about them, but we're starting so many different things. The elders have to be involved in leadership of that kind of stuff. So I'm kind of torn myself. What's what's the right division? What's the wrong division? I don't know, to be honest, about everything. There are some things I think we're going to be passing on to the deacon board. We call them the trustees here. Some things we're still going to have to wrestle through and say, what's the right way to go about this, get it done in the church? But one thing is for certain... I need to do a better job of shaping elders to be ministers of the Word and prayer. Praying the Word into Christians and non-Christians both. Hope to do that. I admit to you, I don't know that I've done that well of a job on that so far. That was one way I thought about it. It means something, too, about how we select elders how we train elders before we select them. We have that kind of perspective, a little more focused, I think. I think we'll have to move towards that in the future in some ways. But secondly, I'm, I moved in my thinking beyond the elder board to the congregation as a whole. Because, is it the case that the elder board is the only group of people called to minister the word and pray? No, the rest of the text makes that clear. Stephen himself makes that clear. He has a particular job. He would be, if you will, a deacon. But he's preaching in the synagogues. It's our job. We all are called to be witnesses for Christ. We all are to minister the word and to pray amongst ourselves and in regards to outsiders. How are we doing at that? Well, I'm not sure that we're doing as well as we should be. I think we have been prone at different times to be distracted by good things, to the avoidance, to the neglect of the critical. I think we have been prone a little bit to only concerning ourselves with the group here, with the church, doing good things. Don't get me wrong. Good things. But more looking at this body as just a place for me to be and for me to be comfortable. Somewhat reluctant to take the word to one another and speak of sin. We have to. It's the only way we grow. Even somewhat more reluctant to take the word outside of the body and speak to others out there. The way I thought about this is if, if we were to catalog somehow all of our prayer time, how much of it would be for non-Christians and how much of it would be for Christians? And how much of the prayer for Christians would be for things related to health, jobs, those kinds of things? All stuff we should pray about. Don't get me wrong. All stuff we should pray about. But are we neglecting something critical? I think we have been prone to do that. We should view this body with a clear connection to witnessing. That what happens in here has a missional element. We create an environment in which we are equipped to be witnesses and in which when people come and look at us, they will be witnessed to. Not negatively, positively witnessed to. So we have to tend to, figuratively speaking, the needs of the widows. Because people will come and look at us and will say, Are you a type of community that that evidences God's mark on you or not? We have to do that. But we need to keep in mind that it has a missional connection. It's not just for the sake of attending to the needs of the widows. And we have to do things that build our community, but we have to view it as for the sake of, partially, getting me equipped to minister to others who are not yet in the fold. Sometimes we view the church put it in a military analogy here. Sometimes we view the church not as a place that you go to on leave. You're in the military, you have a break, you go on leave. If you're in a combat zone, you might have some R&R days where you go to a rear area and take a break and recuperate to head back to the combat zone. We don't view the church as the place we go to on leave or for R&R. We view it as home that we go to when we're discharged. Never to go back. Can't think like that. We have to be real about the church. We have to build the church. We have to be committed to each other. But it has a missional eye to it. And I think that we've forgotten that at times. Hoping that we're getting a better hold on that. So those are my two concerns, I think. How are we doing at protecting the the centrality of prayerful proclamation of the word? Talk about the elder board and the church. My concerns... My caution is that as we are turning the corner, I hope, I pray, to become a church that's more thinking about this critical element and more focusing on what do we do about that? How do we engage people? That we keep at the center of that the word. This is critical for us. For some of us, this might fly right over your head because we don't have some historical perspective. We swim in a, a culture born about 180 years ago, around the 1830s, that views evangelism in a particular way. A way that is largely separated from the Word. Grabs elements of the Word and attempts to influence people towards something that resembles Christianity. Christianity but passes quickly over sin and consequence. The danger is that some people become Christians, and many people are never convicted of sin, therefore don't become Christians. Therefore, when they fill up the churches, the churches are weak. That's America today. We've borne some fruit, That's killing us. The church is bigger than it ever has been and weaker than it ever has been because the gospel sits very lightly on the church. My concern is that as we turn and become, I hope, I pray, more committed to looking at the outside folks who surround us that we are rubbing shoulders with all the time, my concern is that we go to them carefully, tactfully, graciously, kindly, With the gospel. It includes sin. It includes consequence. And then it includes a glorious cross. Jesus warned us, only sick people go to doctors. Only people who are convinced they have a sin problem look for a sin solution. We have to preach the gospel to people. It doesn't mean be mean, but it means preach the gospel. If you want to put all this in one sentence, chapter 6 is exhorting us, encouraging us, reminding us. God grows his church by his word. And so we cannot neglect the prayerful proclamation of the word. Let me pray. Lord, would you teach us how to apply the word to our own lives, to the lives of friends and neighbors around us? Lord, would you give us a growing love for the word? Lord, would you drive it into us? Would you strike us directly with it? We are dependent on you, Lord. The scriptures say that you birth the church. You birth your own children. You bring them forth by the word. And so we pray, would you do it? Would you give us grace to wield the word as we should? But ultimately, would you be the one who wields the word in our mouths and in our hands? Lord, accomplish growth numerically. Accomplish growth qualitatively. Protect us from error and from danger. Make us the kind of people and the kind of church that you want us to be. We submit ourselves to you, Lord, and we ask you for grace to steer us and to correct us, to grow us and change us. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.